If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. While you're turning there, I want to uh, ask a favor. Uh, Would you join me in praying for three things? Um, The first is a praise. Oftentimes we bring requests, and that's a good thing, and we're going to do that. But there are times where we should stop and just praise God. Last week, uh, through social media and emails, we asked you to join us in praying for an elders retreat. Uh, Our elders, we are an elder-led church at New Hope. So our elders are the leaders of the the church. I'm not. uh, I am not the leader of New Hope. Um, I am one of the elders. So that group um, has been asked by our congregation to uh, lead the way. And and we were going on a retreat to begin to process and think about our future as a church and ask you to join us in praying. The sermon today is not about unveiling all those plans, but I do want to just take a moment to thank you. That was the best elders retreat I've been a part of. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it was because many of you uh, were praying for that retreat while it was happening. God blessed us with some clarity, uh, wisdom, discernment. Uh, thinking through the next steps as a congregation. All will be uh, brought to you, but I do want to just stop for a minute and say thank you. Uh, It matters. In fact, it's vital. Uh, If the church is going to remain healthy and walking into the future, your prayers are vital. So thank you for that. Now the two requests. I hope I can get through it. It's been a hard week. Our family lost a friend uh, last Sunday evening. A good man. His children are friends of my children, and it was hard, very unexpected. I'm going to ask you to join me in praying for his family, the Allman family, as they grieve the loss of their dad and husband. As a part of the Mount Gilead Christian Church, and so we're praying a blessing over them, particularly tomorrow and Tuesday, um, as they have those services, I want to ask you to pray for them. In addition to that, our family here at New Hope is grieving too at the very unexpected loss of a very good man in our church. Todd Wolford, who has been a part of New Hope for a few years now, has blessed us tremendously. He's a longtime member of Traders Point, so we join Traders Point today in unity in praying over this family. Todd's blessed us tremendously. If you look back at the, uh, we call it the ark in the middle of the room, uh, he built it. Um, he blessed us so much. And so this coming week's going to be equally hard. Uh, tomorrow and then Tuesday as we have the services here, I just want to ask you to join me in praying a blessing of peace over this family as they grieve. And so let's do that now. We're going to open up in prayer and we'll study this morning. Father, you're incredible. And to sit in the, the home this week of these two grieving families and to go in thinking uh, that you have to minister to them and to walk out having been ministered to is a testimony to your grace in their lives. Father, I thank you for the hope that these families have, the hope of heaven, but while they wait, it hurts. So I just pray a blessing of peace over them. I join my brothers and sisters at New Hope and at Traders Point and at Mount Gilead, and we just ask a prayer of blessing and peace over these families, trusting you with it. And God, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, my prayer is that we would find great hope in the teachings of Ephesians 1. It's no coincidence that we have landed on the passage we have on a week like this. 
So we ask for your blessing on our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In the fall of 2017, uh, my, I was asked to preach the wedding of my neighbor, which that's not uncommon uh, for uh, preachers to get asked to do weddings all the time. But this was cool. This wedding of a good friend who's a, who was our next door neighbor at the time uh, was a destination wedding of sorts. They were going to the beach in North Carolina. And if you've been here for a while, you know it doesn't take a whole lot to convince me to get out of here and go visit the beach. And so they asked us to do that. And so uh, we found out that it wasn't going to be far from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, where we had good friends and family that were going to be there. And so I thought, man, my kids would just love to stop and see these friends. And so we're going to turn this into a whole trip. It happened to be on fall break. And so we head out. Now, something for you to know about me before uh, we keep going with this story is that I am a very, very big North Carolina Tar Heels basketball fan. I have been my whole life. I've raised my children the right way to hate Duke and love Carolina. So I had agreed, like I had already planned to use this story in this sermon before last night. So here's the thing. If I hear a single word about that game last night, (laughs) then my next illustration is going to be about Rutgers and underestimating your opponent. Okay, Purdue? So just take it easy on the Duke stuff. All right? Anyway, we get... We get there, and in Raleigh, I decide, hey, I want to take my kids to Chapel Hill, and it would be really cool to get a picture in front of the Dean Dome where North Carolina plays basketball. Would love to do that. And so uh, we go to the Dean Dome. I'm like, we'll just get a picture in front of the arena, no big deal. And I don't know what came over me, but I thought, man, I just kind of want to go and see if it's open. Nobody was around. I mean, the campus was deserted, and we're like, I doubt it's open. So I reach for the door, and it's unlocked. And we have a moment of reflecting on what should a preacher do and so I did what any preacher would do if the door was unlocked. We went in, <laughs> and we walked around that place, and we took pictures with Michael Jordan pictures and, and national championship posters, and it was so much fun. We walked all around. We began celebrating and talking about all the games that I'd watched and that they'd watched. I took a picture with the kids sitting there in this empty arena. It was awesome, and we celebrated. It was so much fun. Uh, to be on this trip. And uh, then we went, we preached the wedding. It was really good. But we, we've always loved cheering for this team. It's just been this connection with me and the kids. My son was born on February the 4th, 2008. And uh, we were in Illinois at the time uh, when I was in seminary. And so we're at the hospital and we had to be there for a few days. And I have this picture. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, but this just gives you an indication of how much we cheer for them. Duke and North Carolina were playing. It was a much closer game than it was last night back then. And so uh, I have this picture where Caleb is two days old, and I'm holding him up to the hospital room TV to watch his first Duke North Carolina game. Uh, It's awesome. We love celebrating them. Here's why I tell you that. I have a question for you. When was the last time that you really celebrated? Like really celebrated something? You know what I'm talking about, too. That feeling where excitement and gratitude collide. And you can't help yourself. I mean, you just have to celebrate. And you get excited about what it is, but you're also grateful that you get to be a part of it and see what's going on. And for you, it could be sports-related. It could be, you know, you might say, man, it was a big game. It was a last-second shot. It could be personal. It could be a big moment in the life of your children where they just had this accomplishment that they've been working so hard for. And man, your family celebrated. It could be a wedding uh, of somebody that you went to and you're just so excited. And as a family, man, we celebrated. It was excitement and gratitude colliding and created this joy and this excitement. It could be work-related where, man, you've been working so hard on this thing and the deal's finally closed. And man, ah, we just have to celebrate. I'm so excited and grateful for this. It could be retirement. We thought, man, I'm 
Like, I'm done. Like, it's over. I'm excited to be finished. I'm grateful it's over. And now I get to travel. Finally, we've waited for so long to be done, and we're done, and, and you're excited. That feeling where excitement and gratitude collide inside of you. Let me take it a step further. When was the last time that you celebrated Jesus? I mean, really celebrated Jesus. Not, now, coming to church, good. You'll never hear me say, don't do that. I, I'm really glad that you would come and you would be here and that we would sing songs and everybody would be uh, singing and, and celebrating Jesus. But like, when was the last time that you personally really celebrated Jesus? When was the last time that thinking about all that Jesus had done for you and around you in your life created an excitement and a gratitude that just collided inside of you? Here's my concern. That for many of us, getting excited and grateful for Jesus, celebrating all that Jesus is doing, it can be pretty easy early on. Like you think about your baptism when you became a Christian. It's easy, man, I'm celebrating. Or when you see other people make that decision and you celebrate and you're excited for all that's going on with that. That's, that's an easy time. It could also be these mountaintop experiences where celebrating Jesus is not hard to do. It could be at a conference that you went to or a trip that you went on or a hike that you were at the top of a mountain and you're just seeing creation. It's incredible. But what about Monday afternoon on a backcountry road driving to work? What about when nobody's around and there's no event? What is it like in those moments for you to be able to think through and process and celebrate all that Jesus has done? What is it like in year five of being a Christian? It's a little different than year one and the excitement of the newness of it all and understanding all that God had done for you. What about year 25? What about year 45? I mean, what does it really mean for us to celebrate all that it means to be in Christ? What does that look like for us? You see, this is what I think Ephesians is all about. When I sit back, and I would encourage you to do this, we preach through it, we're chopping it up, and understandably, we want to understand every angle that we can. We want to turn and twist this thing and try to get as much as we can out of it, but every once in a while, it's good for you to sit back. I'd say once a week, you sit back, you commit yourself once a week in one sitting, from front to back, I'm going to read Ephesians. Maybe take you 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And when you do that, you begin to see, man, like, Paul's celebrating. I think the letter to the Ephesians is a giant celebration for Paul of Jesus. He's just celebrating Jesus. I mean, it's like excitement and gratitude just boil up in him, and he begins to write to this church all about Jesus. And for three chapters, he's telling them why they should be uh, celebrating him, what about him is worth celebrating. And then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, he's telling them what does it look like for you to live out a life of celebration of Jesus, where he is the thing you celebrate in every part of your life. He's celebrating it. So what does it look like for us? What goes into the recipe, if you will, that creates a life of celebrating Jesus? Think about it like a recipe, if you will. Have you ever worked with a recipe that was hard to understand? It's kind of abstract or like, oh, man, like, why are you writing it like that? I, I don't cook. Be grateful for that. Right? But the few times I've tried, I've run into this frustration where I'm sitting there getting ready to cook something, and I'm like, okay, now the recipe says put a pinch of this in. And I'm like... My pinch is different than your pinch. How do I, I don't even know who wrote this card. How, like if I, I don't even know who did this. Who wrote the book? Where's the author? Let me get a picture of him. What's a pinch? Like what's a pinch of this? Or stir this until it's a nice uh, hearty consistency. Hearty, who even says, that's not even a word. People don't use hearty anymore. Like a hearty consistency. And I just find myself frustrated. Like this isn't how you cook. Just tell me detailed this much of this, this much of this. And to the second, how long should I stir it to get to the consistency that you're telling me I should just know how to get to? Those recipes are maddening. Here's the thing. When God gives us a recipe, it's never that hard to follow. 
See, his recipes are not abstract and difficult to, to make sense of. Let me give you an example. When God tells us how to live and walk through pain and suffering, he doesn't write us an essay that's difficult to understand. See, no, when God wants us to walk through pain and suffering, he introduces us to a man named Job. And for 42 chapters, I get to sit on the ash heap of his pain right next to him. For 42 chapters, I get to learn what it looks like when everything goes wrong and life just doesn't seem like it's working out for you and what it looks like to walk through the worst pain and tragedy, this aching desire for healing inside of you. And I get to sit next to him and watch him partner with God in the healing process. And I learned through 42 chapters reading through that, that story, that part of Job's story, I learned that despite the pain and suffering, somehow he's able to still see that God is sovereign that God is still seated on his throne. That no matter what's going on around him, God can still be considered good. I learned that God is good even when life is not good to me. See, likewise, when God tells us to live a life of celebration, he doesn't tell us, just have blind faith. Just believe. Like, if you just follow Jesus, you're going to celebrate all the time. No, he lays it out for us in great detail. What does it mean to be in Christ so that you know what it is that you're celebrating and what you're worshiping? In other words, he gives us the entire recipe explaining to us what it means to be in Christ. So that's what we're going to read today. And so I'm going to ask you, we're going to read a longer passage. All right, we're going to kind of do an overview of this one long sentence in Ephesians chapter 1. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Here's how Paul describes what it means to be in Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to adoption for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of, his, of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we have also been chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. You can be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever learned from the prayers of somebody? So been around somebody and, and listened to them pray maybe more than once, and all of a sudden, the words that they're choosing to pray begin to shape your perspective, kind of begin to affect you in a powerful way. Right? They, they begin to, like, man, the way that they're talking to God, I'm learning so much about how to relate to God and how to talk to God about the way that they're praying. See, many of you know this. If you don't, um, I've had the privilege of being at this church now for almost 14 years. And in being here at New Hope, I've, I've been able to work my 
the longest stint of my beginning years of ministry right alongside my father-in-law, who's been here on staff since 1988. Part of the privilege of being around him is getting to spend a lot of time with him, to watch him minister to people, to learn from him. And one of the things I've learned from him came from his prayers. And I'm not saying this to be corny, and I'm not saying this just to be superficial or to get brownie points with him, though the brownie points are fine if it happens, but... But I am telling you this, like I, I've learned so much from his prayers that have helped prepare me to lead. And one of the things he says in his prayers has shaped me to the point where I've actually begun to see, like hear the words in my own prayers mimic his words because they've shaped me. And one of the things that he oftentimes will pray, he says it this way. He says, God, you are good and the source of everything good in our lives. Simple, but so very true. The beginning place is understanding that everything worth celebrating in life comes from God. James chapter 1, verse 17 says it this way, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. And here in Ephesians, this is how Paul's starting us out. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So Paul's starting out. This is one long sentence we read. What I stood up, the punctuation would drive an English major crazy, right? Because you're trying to break down this one long verse 3 to 14 sentence. And it's brutal. Like it's just mean, it's as if Paul got so excited he couldn't help and he just begins to describe Jesus. It's like, I'm so excited and grateful for him. And he begins to write and he's like, I don't have time for a period. I got to keep going. And he just keeps describing Jesus. And it's incredible when you read it like that. I mean, just breaking down this, these 14 verses, you see Jesus mentioned by name or title, Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the beloved. Or you see the pronouns or, or, or possessive, and where he or him or his. 15 times in these verses, Jesus is referenced. And then you read the phrase in Christ or in him 11 times. So if you read these verses, the number one thing that jumps out to you is Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. So the beginning part of this recipe to understand how do I begin to live a life of celebration comes from this truth. You have to start with Jesus. That the only way for you to actually live a life of celebrating to the fullness of God, what God wants in your life is for you to begin in him. If you're starting outside of him, you'll never fully understand it. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says it's foolishness to those who are outside of Christ. But those who are in Christ understand all that it means to be a Christian. But here's my fear before we get to this. We've grown numb to it. That is one of my number one fears as a, as a pastor someone who wants to disciple people, is that I go through a list that we're about to go through that explains what the, the beauty of what it means to be in Christ, and we're ready to fall asleep because man, you need a cute story to tie that one together. Like, it's just difficult when you're preaching this to go through this, but I'm going to do it in hopes that it would awaken something in you, a reminder of the beauty of what it means to be in Christ. Ten things. Won't take us too long. A couple hours. You'll be all right. First thing we learn from these verses, 3 through 14, about what it means to be in Christ, the first thing that after we're in Christ that we celebrate is this. It's right there in verse 3. In him we are chosen. In him we are chosen. This is the language of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7 tells us that God has chosen his people, taking his people, and he's chosen them to be holy and blameless, set apart, different, and they're, they're going to be chosen. 
And it's the same language used here of the church. God has chosen his church. He's set them aside to be holy and blameless and different. And he's chosen us to be a part of that. You ever felt left out? You ever felt the sting of not being chosen? We have a, I, I was a, became a Christian as a senior in high school. I have, in one year of youth group, I have more memories than I, I can imagine. Like we get together and it's like, we were only in youth group for a year, but it feels like we have a lifetime of memories. I can't imagine what it's like to have an entire school experience in a youth group. But as a, as a senior, I had th- this ongoing thing that just happened throughout that year numerous times. Our buddy Chad, my, my group of friends, we have a friend named Chad, we'd leave him everywhere. I mean, we left him. We were on a retreat one time with the, with the church. Everybody loaded up in a giant charter bus, and we drove an hour down the road and realized Chad's not here. Like, all the time, we would just leave Chad. Like, it was this, and to this day, everybody thought, man, we've left Chad a lot. Like, yeah, Chad knows the sting of not being chosen to be on the bus and to be included, Okay. <laughs> What Paul's telling us here is that when you're in Christ, you never, ever, ever feel that sting. It is worth celebrating excitement and gratitude for the fact that I've been chosen, not left out, not left behind. The second thing is this. In him, we are predestined. We said this last week uh, in a longer (laughs) uh, teaching time around predestination. Predestination is not this idea that God has predetermined who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. That's not what we mean when we say the word predestined. What we mean, what Paul is saying here is clear in the context. Who is it that's predestined to receive the blessings that God has ordained ahead of time for his chosen people? Well, it's anyone who puts their faith in Christ. Anyone who becomes a Christian, anyone who makes that decision, anyone who's baptized into Christ now has inherited the, the blessings of what it means to be predestined. Certain benefits or blessings for those who have made that decision to become Christians. You've been predestined. Before the creation of the world, he knew in advance what you would do, and he predestined his plan to fix all that was broken. The next one is he that you are adopted. In Christ, in him, we are adopted. Here's the thing. I'm going through this list, and it's like, man, like, I can't tell you how much pressure I put on myself to try to figure out a cute story for every single one of these to make you like feel it. Because I really do think in our culture, we've grown numb to this. Many of us have journeyed with Christ for years, and it's just lost its impact on us. You couldn't tell me the last time you truly celebrated these beautiful truths about being in Christ. You are adopted. I don't know everybody's story in this room, but for me, this one's profound. I lost my dad as a little boy in a a tragic uh, accident. It wasn't an accident. He was killed. In a, in a tragic way, I lost my dad. I didn't grow up with a dad. And, and so this idea of adoption was really hard for me, to be honest with you, to wrap my mind around when I became a Christian. But my earliest memories, as, even as a kid, were daydreaming about what it would be like to be a dad. I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait. Man, I wanted to be a dad. And I've got these four incredible kids now, and all of those dreams have come true. And I think to myself often, man, God, you feel like this about me? You've adopted me? That now I don't just talk to God like creator. I don't just talk to God like king, though he is. He's creator. He is king. And we do talk to him that way. We do relate to him as king and as creator. But I also get to talk to him and relate to him like a father who adores me. I don't know what your experience was like with your earthly father. I don't know if you've felt what it's like to be adored. 
But the scriptures say he delights in you when you're in Christ. He sings over you. Don't let that be lost on you. You've been adopted into his family. Next up is we've been redeemed. What that means is you've been rescued from the bondage of slavery. That you've been, you've been pulled out of slavery. You've been rescued from what slavery was doing to you. Can I tell you as a, as a minister how many times I've sat with people who have been held in bondage in their thinking and in their actions. They've been held captive to addictions like alcohol and drugs and pornography, gambling, all of these things that the enemy is using to get a hold of you like a, like a slave. He's, he's entrapping you. He's, he's holding you in bondage. And what this is saying, when I'm in Christ, the chains of that bondage have been broken. And I'm no longer defined by that struggle. I can break free and walk in that freedom. Once again, I don't know how this doesn't blow our mind every single day I wake up and I think I've been set free. I don't have to be held in captive to what has held me captive all of this time because in Christ, those chains have been broken. He says in verse 7 that we're forgiven. You've been redeemed and your sins have been forgiven. Here's what that says. That says that your, everything you've ever done can be forgiven. But please hear that. Every mistake you've ever made. Every person you've ever hurt, every continually bad decision that you've made, every bit of shame that you have carried on your own shoulders, every bit of dignity that's been stripped from you because of those choices can be forgiven in Christ. You can walk in the freedom of knowing that you're forgiven for everything, for everything that you've gone through. And I don't know if there's anything worth celebrating more than the idea that you can be forgiven of everything that's happened to me. I can start fresh right now in this moment. I can start new in Christ. You see, these ideas, chosen, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, all of this part of the list just brings my mind immediately back to the Old Testament. This idea when, when God delivered his people from captivity to Egypt. See, they were being held captive in Egypt to Pharaoh they were enslaved to Pharaoh. They were being mistreated. And God comes and he delivers them. His wrath was going to come on Egypt and he gave his people a way to be forgiven, redeemed, rescued from that wrath that was coming. And do you remember how they were rescued from that wrath? They took the blood of a lamb. And they rubbed it on the doorposts of their home. And Paul's saying here in the same way, in Christ you are covered by the blood of the Lamb. The wrath of God that will come, the Bible is clear that the punishment for sin is death. And that punishment that, that is coming when you have been covered in the blood of the Lamb, you are no longer held accountable for that. You've been set free. Is anything more beautiful than that? That whatever you've gone through in your life, he has set you free. He wants you to experience this. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says, in him we have the riches of his grace lavished on us. God doesn't just want to give you grace. He wants to pour it out on top of you. He wants you to understand how much he loves you. You will never outgive God. He is the most generous of, of everybody. He will always outgive you. Do you know what it's like to walk in the freedom of grace? I've had conversations already this morning with people but because of something that happened in their past, they can't seem to get free of it. They just continue to hold themselves captive. And for me to look at them in the eyes and tears in their eyes and say to them, 
he, he's forgiven that. He doesn't just want you to know you're forgiven. He wants you to actually start living as though you're forgiven. The confidence of his grace. Do you, do you know what that feels like? To wake up every day and have the enemy come for you. To come after you with thoughts. To make you think twice about who you are in Christ. And then to come back to this truth to celebrate. No, in Christ, this is who I am. Hear, hear me when I say this. This is a phrase from a preacher that I really respect. I'm very grateful for. He said this line, and you can try your, to, to push up against it, but I just think it's true. Here's the thing about God's grace. Every day when you wake up, there is always more grace in God than there is sin in man. God never runs out of grace. He wants to give it. You, you just have to be willing to accept it. He'll redefine everything about you. Verse 9, it says, In him, the mystery of God's will is revealed to us. The mystery of his will. Well, the mystery of his will to fix everything that was broken. See, Adam and Eve are created. Sin enters the world, and now there's this giant gap between us and God. We can't relate to him anymore. And the big question in the meta narrative, the big picture of Scripture is this. The big question is, how's God going to fix that? And he begins to do that with his people. He identifies a people, Israel, and he begins to uh, deliver them. And, and have, but then he has to continue to do that. And then all of a sudden he sends the Messiah. He sends Jesus. And it's revealed to us this mystery that God's going to fix everything that's been broken in everybody's life for all of time through Jesus. That he's the solution to it all. Again, Paul would write to the church in, First Corinthians, in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1.18. That's foolishness to people that are outside of Christ. But when you're in Christ, boy, that's worth celebrating. Because you now have felt the power of God in your life. And you know, I've actually been invited into the mystery. This reminds me of something one of my seminary professors would tell us all the time about Alexander the Great. If you're a history fan, you, you know Alexander the Great. Even as a young teenager was this military mind. He was just brilliant. And the brilliance of Alexander the Great didn't come in jumping on a horse and going and fighting everybody like in some movie. It came in strategy. He's, his brain would work around understanding the enemy in such a way that he could strategize a plan to overcome any kind of enemy. Even as a young boy, he was able to just think this way. And so it, it's told that he would have this tent as they were preparing for battle in the days leading up to a big fight. And in the tent, they would have uh, his apartment, if you will, uh, his sleeping quarters. But then they had this room in the tent that was designed. And only certain people could come into that room. And when he would get that invited group into the room, they would sit around and he would reveal. And the same word when you read about this, it's the same word that Paul uses here. It's the Greek word mysterion. He would reveal the mysterion of his strategy. And everybody would then prepare their minds and, oh, that's how we're going to do it. I never would have thought, man, I didn't see that. Man, that's incredible. And then they would go and they would fight the battle and win. And Paul's saying here that in Christ, God has revealed to us in Christ the mystery, the mysterion of his will on how he's going to fix everything that sin broke. Namely here, how God started with the Israelites and now he's extended his salvation to the Gentiles. A mystery to Paul, who was a Jew of Jews, but sent to the Gentiles. This mystery has been revealed to us. Next up, it says in verse 10 that in him all things are unified. 
in Christ, all things will be brought together, the broken world. Everything that sin has destroyed, everything that the pain you've walked through has separated and divided, everything in creation that's been broken because of sin, all things are going to be made back together. Revelation 21 verse 5 says this, Behold, I make all things new. Meaning he's going to bring it all together, unify everything under Christ. When I read this one, my mind, I I geek out. I already did a sports analogy, so you're going to have to forgive me. I go straight to Lord of the Rings. (laughs) And it's this powerful moment when Samwise Gamgee, who has missed Gandalf, Gandalf is believed to be dead. He's the wizard lead. And just read it. Uh, Watch the movies too. But he's believed to have been dead. And so there's this grief. Then he sees Gandalf. And he has this moment where when he sees Gandalf, it just completely, the celebration breaks out in him. And he asks this profound question. Such a good question. He says this. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And Paul's saying here, yeah. When Jesus returns, everything sad, everything broken is going to come untrue as he unifies everything back together. Verse 11 and 12 says, In him we are appointed to a purpose. In Christ we are appointed to a purpose. This is a little bit different than verse 3. In verse 3, and your, your translation might actually say you were chosen for a purpose. And that's similar to verse 3 where he says he's chosen, but it's a different word in the, lang- in the original language in this one-line sentence we're studying. In verse 3, it's saying, when you're chosen, you, I want you to be a part of my family. In verse 11 and 12, when it says that you're chosen or appointed, it's a different word. And what it means is, I want you to be a part of my team, meaning I've got a role for you. I've got a job for you to do. I want you to be a part of my family, but you also have a role to play in representing Jesus, meaning every single day. Here's the practical application of this. Everybody who's in Christ, if you're discipling somebody who's a young Christian, one of the things to get through to them is this. Every single day that you wake up, you have purpose for your life. No matter what happens to you in the world, every day I have a reason for living. I have a reason to get up out of bed. I have a reason to go and be there because that reason is I have been appointed by him to bring him glory by the way that I live. And what that means is this. Every place I go, I'm his ambassador. So in my marriage, I have to represent Jesus well to Sarah. As I'm raising my children, my children, Caleb, Abby, Luke, and Noah, I have to go to them and they have to see Jesus. I'm Jesus's ambassador in my home, my coworkers, my friends, every single place I go, God has asked me the biggest purpose in my life is to say, how do I represent Jesus in this environment? When I leave, How will they see him with more clarity than they saw him before I got here? That's what he's saying here. That's in Christ, you have a purpose for your life every single day. Last, in him, you're like, how many more? One more. In him, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to talk more about that next week, but essentially what that means is what it says in the text. It's like a guarantee. It's like a king's seal on an envelope. It's like a down payment saying, hey, I'm coming back, and you have an inheritance, and it's going to be incredible, but until I get there, let me give you this Holy Spirit as a seal marking your inheritance that's coming. Now, when I read this list, that's 10 things in this one sentence that I sit back, and you know the first thought that comes to my mind? I don't know if it comes to your mind is this. Wow! I mean, really, wow. We have so much to be grateful for. So much to celebrate when we're in Christ. And the second thought I have is, man, how have we grown so numb to this? Why doesn't this excite us anymore? What is it that's caused us to drift away from him or to completely walk away from him altogether? And it takes certain reminders, like sitting in the living room, 
two hurting families this week, rocked by the most unexpected loss that doesn't seem to make sense and definitely would not make sense. Can I tell you that in both of those situations, I walked into one house and my son hugged his friend in tears. And his friend said, I don't know how you get through this without Jesus. And I sat in a living room of another hurting family and I said, how do you do this if you're outside of Christ? Why did they say that? Because of these 10 things. Because this is what's true about their life. This isn't a game that they play or a routine that they go through. This, is, this truth has embedded itself on their heart. Every day they wake up, they know I'm in Christ. This is what this means. We have so much to celebrate. But there's a warning that comes with this. And it's a fascinating warning to me. I hope you'll see the connection with the language here. Warning comes in Jesus' own words in John chapter 15. Jesus will use such similar language. It's as if Paul learned Ephesians 1 from somebody. John chapter 15, the night he's betrayed, Jesus says these words, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be made even more fruitful. Meaning, when you're in Christ, your life has to show that that's made a difference in your life. Like, it's not that you're earning it. It's not that somehow if you don't do it, God's going to be upset with you. It's that when you fully understand what it means to be in Christ, you have no choice but to celebrate. You write run-on sentences because you don't got time to write a period or put a comma in there because you're just too excited and grateful for everything that Jesus has done, so you just keep going. That's what Jesus is saying here. Your life will produce fruit when you're attached to the vine. You already are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. And notice the language from now on. Remain in me also, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, the purpose of our life, to bring him glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. That's incredible to me. That's just 10 of the 11 verses that I read to you. And in 10 verses, 12 times, he references in one way or another remaining in him, that everything is about him. So everything you do, our temptation is to say, well, following Jesus is about what I go and do. I need to go make disciples. And I need to go and start this thing and go. And if I don't do it, God will be mad at me. And everything's about the purpose of the Christian life is to remain attached to the vine. The, the source of life, it's to remain in him. And from that, he will burst forth in celebration and produce fruit in your life, leading you to all kinds of places to do all kinds of things, ultimately for his glory and not for yours. And Jesus tells us why this is important. Look at verse 11. I've told you this. I want you to get this. That's what he's saying. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Let me translate that for you. I'm telling you this so that you can celebrate. So that your life is a collision of gratitude and excitement for all that it means to be in Christ. 
My prayer for you, with, from the bottom of my heart, is that truth would never grow old. That every day you wake up, you would be so excited. You'd come to understand that God is awesome. Yeah, it sounds real simple, but man, how true. God is awesome. Being saved is awesome. And he saved us. So he's worthy of being worshipped and celebrated. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are the source of everything good in our lives. And so we thank you. God, we thank you that when we walk through difficulty, pain, suffering, tragedy, you're good. And we thank you, Father, that when we go through the good times, we know who to thank because you're good. May it never be lost on us all of the blessings that have been lavished and poured out on our lives for those of us who are in Christ. Foolishness to the world that's perishing, but to those of us who are in Christ, we experience your power in our lives through the blessings that you give to us. May we make much of Jesus in response. And we ask for this in his name and all God's people said. We're going to take communion together now. Again, I... We didn't plan this. And Ben and I, uh, again, it was a long week, and we didn't get to connect as much as I would have liked. And so we're talking through communion even this morning, and it's like, hey, you know, you're leading into communion. And I'm like, yeah, I think the sermon will do that. I think Paul does that for us in Ephesians 1. I don't think I have to do much. Because communion is just that. It is a response to the goodness of God. Think about that list. As you hold the elements, remembering that his body and his blood were given for you, that because of this sacrifice, the blood of the lamb was put on the doorway of your heart. And it changed everything about your future. Communion is a time to celebrate. But if you're not in Christ, if you've never made that decision, you've never been baptized into Christ, I'd like nothing more than to sit next to you here and talk to you about that. You can come up to me during this time, during the closing, after the service is over. I'd like nothing more than to talk to you about the most important decision you will ever make. Let's pray. Father, this time is for you. We celebrate you and the goodness that comes from being in Christ. As we partake of these elements, the bread symbolizing your body and the juice symbolizing your blood, may it stir in us a collision of excitement and gratitude, causing us to pour forth celebration for all that it means to be in Christ. And we give you this in his name and all God's people said.